God created men to be leaders. And as a senior pastor, these last 12 years or so, I've sought to approach my ministry with men as a leader among leaders. That is, I view God's men here as leaders. And so I'm simply a leader among those who are also leaders. We had a year long theme here, if you remember, about a year and a half ago or two, where we focused on men being godly leaders. And we just finished up a theological conference, Brother Danny, with revivalist Richard Owen Roberts. You might know that name where we addressed the theme, rise up, O men of God. So I'm convinced that the word of God teaches men are leaders. The issue really isn't whether or not a man is a leader or not. The issue or the question is, what type of a leader is he going to be? And so, sir, I ask you, what type of a leader are you? You are either the type of leader who has a positive impact in society, in your family, in the church. Or you're the type of leader who causes others to be distracted or drawn away from godliness. And I know that sounds strong, but scripture is loaded with illustrations and examples of both of the type of leader who instills a sense of uh, of uh, of desire to follow the Lord more closely, sets that example, gives that kind of direction. And scripture is also full of examples of those who would, by their lack of character, by their poor conduct, by their poor actions and reactions, lead folks astray. And so I want you to embrace the premise that men are leaders And really wrestle with the issue, men, of what type of leader you are or what type of leader you will be. If you'd make your way to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew in the New Testament, turn to the prophet Malachi. After Malachi was written, there were 400 years of silence wherein God didn't breathe out any more scripture. So the title, the name of this prophet Malachi is fitting because the name means my messenger. I have a message for you. Get this message because there's going to be 400 years of silence. God moved upon this man to bring a final rebuke And a final call to repentance to God's national people. And the prophecy was given just a few years, maybe 10 to 20 years after Nehemiah and the people rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. So the temple sacrifices had begun again under Ezra. The walls had been rebuilt. Generally, religious life in Judah was back. And the general theme of Malachi is God confronting those professing believers in their dead orthodoxy. Maybe he would challenge one of us today who is going through the motions, who looks like he is appropriate on the outside and maybe even is functioning in some capacity, but his heart is very distant 
from the Lord. That's what was going on in this day. They were pretending to honor God, although they were only going through the motions. Their hearts were very far from them. Chapter one, verses six through eight, just by way of introduction, gives us an idea of that. It says in chapter one and verse six, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master... Where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priests that despise my name, and ye, and ye say, in what way have we despised thy name? Ye have polluted bread upon mine altar, and you say, in what way have we polluted thee? In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? God is saying to them, you're going through the motions. Uh, you're bringing an offering, but it's the very worst of the flock. You are um, bringing a grain offering, but it's what really you, was gonna, you were going to discard anyway. And you wonder uh, why I'm upset with you. You want to um, do this to your very own governor. Hey, take this to your president and see what he has to say about it. And yet you would do this to me, God almighty. That's the theme of Malachi. It is saying you men are leaders, but you're not leading in the right way. And it's causing a great measure of damage. And so Malachi seems to really focus on the ineptness of leadership. And since men are leaders, I want to share three primary points with you this morning from the book of Malachi with some sub points. The first thing we consider is that, sir, you are God's leader in your community. That is right in your sphere of influence out there in society. You are God's leader in that situation. If you look at chapter two, verses 10 through 13, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Have we not all one father? Hath not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? In other words, you're sinning against one another. Your testimony is not what it ought to be in society and among your brethren. Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved and hath married the daughter of a foreign or a pagan God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with any, with goodwill at your hand. In other words, you are even going through the motion of, of pretending like you're sorrowful, yet you go on sinning, you keep on doing it as a people. And God says he is going to address that. Folks, as professing followers of Jesus Christ, what you do, where you go, what you believe, all of that matters. It makes a difference what I believe. It makes a difference how I behave. It makes a difference how I act and how I react. And it does for you as well. And men in society, out there in your community, who you are really makes a difference for the credibility of your testimony. People who know you to be a follower of Christ 
expect you to live a certain way. Your conduct makes a difference. Your conduct makes a difference among your coworkers, among your extended family. Um, if, uh, how many would say my extended family, that is my siblings, my grown siblings and, and my parents and, and others, and they, they generally know me to be a follower of Christ. Is there anyone in here like that? Your family knows you. Am I the only one? Anybody else? Your family knows that you're a follower of Christ. I thought that that would be the case. You didn't know I was actually asking you for a, a show of hands. They're looking at you by virtue of them knowing that they now have um, going through that filter uh, some idea of what that must mean. And yet you take as someone like King David uh, and he was expected to live a life of holiness. Yet because of his sin with Bathsheba and uh, having her husband killed, it says in 2 Samuel 12, 14, because you have done this, the enemies of the Lord have been given reason to blaspheme. They've been given reason to mock the name of God because of how a particular leader handled himself in the community. God is serious about this issue of those who bear his name. And he calls us to walk the talk. What we profess, we need to be having in uh, very uh, much a part of our lives. Look how vivid this is in chapter two and verses one through three. Chapter two in Malachi, verses one through three. And now, O ye priests, or you leaders, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. In other words, you're living hypocritically and I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to address it. How is he going to address it? Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. What's it talking about there? Whenever they would bring an offering, whenever they would bring an animal um, for a sacrifice, that animal was killed there in the temple. And uh, various parts of the animal were forbidden to be offered, uh, namely the intestines and, and various other parts. And those items were gathered up and taken far away from the temple and they were burned outside the camp because they weren't acceptable. They were contemptible. And the, the Lord is saying through his prophet, you who presume to be leaders, you who uh, are recognized as leaders, I am going to uh, take as it were the dung of that offering and it's going to be smeared on your faces and you're going to be made uh, out of what you really are. It's going to become very evident who you really are. And with the rest of that carcass that is not fit to be offered, not fit to be used uh, in, in, uh, as an offering, it's going to be taken outside the camp and burned. In other words, God is saying, I'm just going to do away with a whole lot of you and start over um, if there isn't repentance. He is very serious that spiritual leaders be fit to represent him. How do you do that? How as a believer, uh, a true believer, will, uh, will that be realized in your life? First of all, spill the salt. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You'll remember that a month ago, I brought a message from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, which says that you are the salt of the earth. And you'll remember that like salt, believers have the capacity to flavor and to preserve that which is in the, their sphere. In other words, we influence what we touch. And in order for that to be uh, the case, we need to be spilled out of the salt shaker and out into the world so that we can uh, permeate and, and penetrate that which is around us and we can make a difference. <clears throat> what causes salt to lose its effectiveness? 
contamination with the world. And so the professing believers in our text, they had taken pagan wives, it says in verse 11, and uh, they had, um, they had uh, uh, really polluted the offering and they had diminished their own effectiveness because of their own willful sin and they were no longer salt uh, that could be spilled out. They were contaminated. Secondly, about this idea of being God's leader in your community, shine the light. Jesus said in the next verse of Matthew 5, 14, um, about his people, that they are the light of the world. And he said in verse 16, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And so when light is present, it always drives out darkness. Darkness cannot coexist with light. And so you're going to make a difference as long as you're not contaminated by the world, that is your pure salt. And as long as you're letting your light shine, that is you are, uh, you're making, you're taking a stand. You're taking a stand for orthodoxy, uh, for theological orthodoxy and for holiness in your life. And in fact, you are shining the light in that dark place. The salt must be spilled out. The light must be shining. And if it's going to be hidden, it's not going to be effective. So, sir, you are a leader. Have you taken the, uh, the salt and spilled it out? Have you taken the light? And in fact, are you shining it in a dark world? Are you making a difference in your community? They were not in this text. And God said through his prophet, he was going to hold them accountable. Secondly, in our text about men being leaders. Sir, you are God's leader for your companion. You are God's leader for your companion. Say, I'm not married. Well, for your future companion. Uh, or uh, you can, uh, you can uh, uh, share a testimony of what it means for a man to be the leader in, uh, of his wife. In chapter 2 and verse 14, you'll see it says, yet you say, why? In other words, why aren't we going to receive good at your hand? Because the Lord hath been a witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit. And why one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of justice? In other words, God isn't really serious about what he says. This text here has to do with a marriage between a man and a woman being uh, the, uh, the highest of human relationships. Only one's commitment to Christ uh, really supersedes that. When a man and a woman become husband and wife, they enter into a covenantal relationship. That is a promise, an ironclad promise. And verse 14 identifies the wife, identifies one's spouse as a companion and the relationship as a covenant. And so at a wedding, when a wedding takes place, a man makes a vow to his spouse and he makes that vow under the auspices or the authority of the state and in the presence of the Savior that he will care for his bride all his days. Well, throughout time 
and especially in our day, many treat marriage as disposable. Marriage is just disposable. Even professing believers sin in much the same way as this text describes. Uh, In a, a commentary, James Montgomery Boyce illustrates this point. And he wrote, in 1940, there was one divorce for every six marriages. In 1960, there was one divorce for every four marriages. In 1972, there was one divorce for every three marriages. And by 1970, talking about in the United States, and by 1977, there was one divorce for every two marriages. In that year alone, there were a million divorces in the United States. The dogmatic argument in favor of God intending marriage uh, between a man and a woman to last for a lifetime is found in verse 15. And that is what were once two have now become one. Now notice, look, I want you to look in verse 15. Did he not make one? In other words, it's referring back to Genesis. Um, he, uh, God uh, uh, pronounced them as it were husband and wife. What were two, what were once two are now one. And then you notice the next phrase, it says, yet had he the residue of the spirit. That in all the commentaries, they say very difficult phrase to understand. It's very hard to understand and all kinds of ideas were offered. I like uh, to uh, settle a, 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 an interpretive issue by the context. What is the context here? It's referring back to where the um, Spirit of God breathed out creation. And it says here in verse 15, <clears throat> the idea is having a residue of the Spirit is that um, the Spirit of God had all of the creative power necessary to give Adam or Eve multiple spouses. In other words, the Spirit of God was there. He could have breathed out multiple husbands for Eve. He could have created multiple wives for Adam if he would have wanted to. But God chose one mate for Adam. God chose one mate for Eve. And what God hath drawn together and put together, let no one put asunder. And so... The idea of the permanence and the uh, sanctity of marriage is strongly taught here to the degree that verse 16 says, for thus say, notice it, notice how he phrases, for thus saith the Lord. Oh, and by the way, if you don't know who that is, the God of Israel, let me even go further. And what does he say? He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't say, now you need to have a kind of a warm feeling toward your marriage covenant. You need to really think seriously about that. He says, I hate putting away the idea of divorce. I hate divorce. And what God says in one place that he hates, how would he allow for it somewhere else? Of course, it's a ludicrous argument. Sir, you are God's leader for your companion, your spouse. How? A couple of ways. You are her provider. Instead of pouring their lives into providing for the wives, many of them in that day were treating them treacherously. Notice in verse 10, in verse 14, 15, and 17, these folks are accused of behaving treacherously. Uh, that word uh, used, uh, uh, oh, uh, 40 to 50 times in the Old Testament, always from the same Hebrew root word. Really, it's from one root word, depending on if you use it as a verb or a noun or an adjective. It's one root word, and it's used generally the same way throughout the Old Testament and exactly the same way in the book of Malachi. And the word can also be translated uh, deceitfully. Anybody have to deceive? You've dealt with, uh, de- dealt with them in a deceitful manner. It can be that. But 
it's not deception through trickery. Uh, there are th- that, that word for deception is used, but that's not what it is. It's not through sleight of hand. It's not that I'm fooling you and, um, and therefore I'm, de- I'm behaving treacherously in that. This is a very specific word which has to do with I'm no longer going to honor my commitment. I'm going to go back on my vow. I know what I said, but I'm going to be treacherous in what I said. And I'm going to go back on that. I'm no longer going to live up to my word. Really, it's profound unfaithfulness to one's sworn allegiance. And this type of treachery, it's always accompanied, at least in the context, by having a, by being mean spirited. And so even though God has said the husband is to provide for her and to care for her, he leaves his wife um, through a mean spirited act of treachery, going back on what he vowed before God that he would do. That is care for her, love her, provide for her until death do us part. He says, I'm not going to do it any longer. And the Lord brings the strongest rebuke on this. This is not an indifferent issue. This is not a side issue at all. Not when the text right here in verses 14, 15 and 17, all are saying you are behaving treacherously and it is not to be Done. I hate what you are doing. And the context only is dealing with divorce. He is to be her provider. Secondly, he is to be her protector. A husband is called to protect his wife, as 1 Peter 3, 7 says, as a weaker vessel. He really is the stronger one of the two, stronger in a number of ways. He's the one to carry the pressure. He's the one to um, go out and, uh, and uh, kill the buffalo and drag it home. He's the one who is to lay down his life as Christ laid down his life for the church, his bride. A husband is to lay down his wife, uh, lay down his life for his, uh, his bride, for his wife. She's to be treated as delicate, as fragile, as a pearl of great price. That's the illustration um, there with, uh, with salvation, that she is to be that pearl of great price in the eyes of her husband. Scripture could not be more clear. God hates divorce. Now notice in verse 16, it says, he hates divorce, he hates putting away, for one covers violence with his garment. What, what is that talking about? One covers violence with his garment. Well, it's an illustration of, of the men uh, in this text being treacherous. You remember that in the book of Ruth, how Ruth um, covered uh, uh, the feet of Boaz with her garment. You all remember that story? Is that how it goes? And that was a, that was a statement in that day. That was, uh, that was a symbol of trust, of commitment. I'm coming underneath your protection. We are now one. I am, I, am, I am giving my allegiance to you. It's that kind of a thing. And these men, while they were forsaking their wives, while they were being treacherous, they were, as it were, um, trying to cover all that up by making excuses, by, uh, well, she, she, uh, she burned my pancakes, or she's not fit any longer, or uh, she's not uh, right with God. And after all, look at how righteous I am. Doing all kinds of things and saying all kinds of things in, in a way so as to put her away in divorce. Spreading one's garment was a symbol of commitment, yet they were doing it through treachery while they were forsaking their wives. The Lord's strongest rebuke is given to that type of behavior. Sir, you are the leader of your companion, of your spouse. What kind of a leader 
are you being? Are you the type of a leader who uh, uh, turns and runs when the, with the first sign of trouble? Or are you the type of leader who will dig in and, and say, by his grace and for his glory, I am going to honor him through honoring and caring for my wife. It's going to be one or the other. And, and you may not blow apart in divorce, but are you living at uh, separate ends of the same house? Are you uh, indifferent to one another? Or in fact, are you best friends? Are you soulmates as scripture would describe? Thirdly, and finally in chapter four, we see one other area where the man is the leader. And sir, you are God's leader of your children. I think you could say to some degree, grandchildren, at least by influence with grandchildren. Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now I understand that these verses are prophetic. They are looking uh, uh, to the time of uh, the return of Christ at the, what I believe is at the end of the tribulation period. And then it's not primarily a parental passage, but understand the, the, the theme of what is going on prophetically here. And you will, um, you will likely see uh, that it's very much father and child. What's going on? Well, I'm convinced that God is actually going to send Elijah. And I believe the other witness in Revelation 11 is Enoch. And the reason why I believe it's Elijah and Enoch is because scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die, but Elijah and Enoch never died. They were taken right off the earth in a whirlwind. And so they've not tasted a physical death. And so I believe they're going to be the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 who are going to be martyred and then resurrected. But I'm not, I'm not married to that. Don't hate me if you don't hold to that because I don't care if you don't hold to that view. It's not a critical view. But it does uh, illustrate uh, what we're talking about here because the text says, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, at the before, at the point of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what's going to be the ministry of um, Elijah in the, in the, uh, during this time? Well, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. In other words, there's going to be a, a restoration there. What has taken place? Well, for seven years, 144,000 Jewish evangelists were out preaching and lots of people, and, and, and certainly the Jewish evangelists were adult men, who had children. And so a lot of people believed the message. A lot of people didn't. There's going to be uh, one, uh, Elijah is going to come, perform all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles to authenticate the message of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And that is going to convince all of Israel, Romans 11, verse 25, soon all Israel shall be saved. All of them will in fact embrace Christ as Messiah. Therefore, thereby turning hearts of fathers and children's to, to children to one another because they're both turning to the Lord. Did you follow that argument? I think it's consistent within itself. The point here is there is a time um, that the hearts of fathers and children need to be turned to one another and will be turned to one another. And for us, that time is now. What's the lesson for fathers? Well, first of all, disciple them. Disciple your children through your consistent example. Dad, is your testimony credible? 
before your children? Is it believable? Do they see that Christ controls your life and that your allegiance is to him? And so that when they do hear the gospel or when God does convict them, they'll say, yes, I saw the power of God in dad's life or in grandfather's life. Your children are watching your example and Scripture, Ephesians 6, 4 is clear. It says, you fathers provoke not your children to wrath. How do you provoke your child? By being inconsistent, by saying one thing and living another. I've asked all of my children. I've asked them a number of times uh, over the years. Do you find my life to be credible? Do you believe that I live what I preach? And I'm thankful that they have said, yes, I do see that. We can't live like that all the time, but we sure see you. And I'm not saying that for bragging rights. I want them to see a credible testimony of following the Lord. And then finally, discipline them through corrective exhortation. Ephesians 6, 4 goes on to say, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so, Father, give your children clear biblical instruction. And that's right in our text, too. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horb for all Israel with the statutes and the ordinances. Remember it. The idea is have it a, a part of your life. Be teaching it, be talking about it, be instilling godly principles in the lives of your children and hold them to that in action and in attitude. Dad, you are a leader. They were in Malachi's day, but they were very poor leaders. And God brought this last message before 400 years of silence to prick their hearts, to turn from their own way and turn to him. Where are you in your community? What difference are you making? How are you in your marriage what would your children say and your grandchildren say about your life in surrender to the Lord? Would those things check out and you and you would hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or might you have been part of this crowd that was rebuked for a poor testimony before the world, for forsaking marriage, for not leading your children in the way that God would have you. You know where your heart is, sir. I've had to wrestle with this this week and, uh, and I want to be in my sphere of influence in society, with my wife, with my children, future grandchildren. I want to be uh, that which is a positive influence, that which is salt, is light, and will make a difference. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. And for this day, when we can focus on the importance of uh, fathers and men being leaders, may you speak to every heart and uh, grip uh, and convict the hearts of those who are wayward and far from you. And Lord, that you would uh, do a work that uh, only you can do. You have to do it in convicting and uh, 